Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. Pleasure to be with you here once again. Our guest today is going to be Mr. Hank Forster, my colleague at the National Beer Association. He's the director of hunting. I'm going to ask him the question right out of the gate. Do we really need more hunters? Believe it or not, some people uh, question whether or not we need more hunters. We'll get into mentoring and, and some other things. So looking forward to that conversation. Doctors in the house. Mike, how did you make it through the snowstorm? Our first one really of this winter. Made it through well. It helped that it fell over a weekend. So it didn't actually, it impacted school a little bit on Monday. We taught virtually that day, but it was good that the majority of that snow fell on Sunday. That did certainly help out. And we got, oh, I think the newspaper said we got a, a nine inches or something like that, but I'm, I'm, I'm certain we had a foot, at least in my neighborhood. And yeah, having it be on the holiday was good. It allowed me to get myself cleared out and, and some of the neighbors. I've, I've got the biggest snowblower, I think, on the block, having lived in North Dakota. And so I think when they hear that thing being fired up, they like they like to see me coming. So I helped out with that. It was funny, though, on Tuesday morning, there was a you needed to go out and do a secondary job because it continued to snow through Monday. And so I ran out there real early. It was still dark. And I, I live on a street where the kids walk to school. Uh, and so at least you avoid that where you live. But anyway, I went out and hurried up and got everything cleaned up only to come in and find out that school was canceled. So there you have it. Well, hey, you were still out there doing your due diligence. And yeah, that, that wind, I think, blew a lot of the snow around as well. So it, we had some interesting weather. It wasn't definitely sitting on the stand weather. No, it wasn't. And we didn't <laughs> because of that. Too. Exactly our, right. The last day of our season would have been the Monday. And yeah, I, I didn't even... Uh, come close to entertaining the idea. Hey, our sponsor today is Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. Uh, incidentally, I'm heading to Springfield, the where the headquarters is, and I'm actually going to be at the Wonders of Wildlife Museum. This will be next week. Actually, as you're listening to this on Wednesday, I will be in the air uh, on the way there. And so the reason I'm going is when we had the old QDMA headquarters down near Athens, Georgia, our founder, Joe Hamilton, had this idea to build what he calls the antler tree. And over the years, this thing grew. I, he has the exact dimensions and the weight and everything. I should have this. I apologize, Joe, if you're listening. Uh, but it's a lot. And he has antlers there from every state in the United States that has white-tailed deer, which is really, really cool and awesome. And so whenever we sold our building, uh, we said, where are we going to put the antler tree? And it turns out that uh, Joe had reached out and ended up gifting the antler tree to Johnny Morris uh, and Johnny accepted the gift and they're going to put it in the wonders of wildlife museum. And so Joe and a couple uh, other NDA staffers will be out there helping put that together. And then I'm going to get a chance to fly out and see it at the museum, spend some time there with, with Joe, our board chairman, Rick Dahl, and also uh, hopefully Johnny and JP Morris and Bob Zemer from Bass Pro Shops. who's on our board. So uh, this just seemed like a timely time to have uh, Bass Pro Shops be our sponsor. So uh, also they obviously support a lot of our work, which we appreciate. So Cabela's Bass Pro Shops are, is the sponsor for this week. I'll have more to report on after that trip, which I'm really looking forward to. Ask NDA, any, uh, Ask NDA Anything will be in our next episode since we just did it last time. I, I do have uh, questions that have come in for that, which is good. So we'll look forward to doing that. And that's good. So you don't have to shame anybody this week, but oh, I'm still going to shame them because we could always, <laughs> we could always use more questions, but we don't always just get questions. We also sometimes get people just send us a nice note. And I want to read this one from our, uh, one of our listeners, Sean, and he sent several pictures, which is really cool. A picture of him with a buck and his kids and, uh, with a deer as well. And also some, some kitchen action. So what happened to these deer, they end up in the kitchen. Right. And so Sean wrote to us, he said, this is, this is just thanks for taking the time to answer my previous questions on your podcast in mid-October. Uh, I have a good setup now in the middle of some grapevines. This was both a successful season in regards to hunting and cooking. Uh, Hank Shaw material and the meat eater cookbooks have been used a lot in the last couple of years. Learning how to properly prepare a shank was one of the better cooking revelations. Uh, lastly, I'm looking forward to trying the, the sun hemp and cow pea mix you've talked about and, uh, and having the book. It says, keep up the good work and all you do. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's great to know that people take the time to send us their pictures. I always ask for those. And this is where the shaming comes in, Mike. Sean has done it. 
and he's shown that it is possible and we'll actually talk about them. So send me your, your pictures where we want to see how your deer season went. Uh, and also anything related to deer and deer hunting, we'd love to see them and we'll talk about them here on the show, but we'll do ask NDA anything next episode. Speaking of what travel, I'll say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm going to jump in front of you there. Sorry for that. But I will have to say is that Sean, I think is shaming me because that shank looked delicious. I mean, he did a bang up job with that meal. So well done, Sean. Congratulations on your deer. Yeah, I'm the first to admit I get pretty lazy sometimes in the kitchen. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to have deer burgers <laughs> whenever I could make something really cool. So, yes, that was uh, you, you could you could just smell and taste that photo when it came in. Uh, speaking of traveling, yeah, I'm, I'm back from the ATA show, Archer Trade Association show. Um, and we had some really good meetings there. Uh, my colleague Lauren Varner and I and Lindsay Thomas Jr. were there at ATA together and had some really good meetings with some corporate partners. And I think we're going to be adding some new ones for this year to NDA. So uh, looking forward to announcing those soon. So that was a good trip. And uh, really, I think, I think that's about it for, uh, for the intro, Mike, because I want to make sure that we give our guest Hank some time to talk here about a program he's really excited about. Uh, his work as the director of hunting and our field to fork program. And like I said, we're going to ask him some tough questions. So let's go ahead and bring Hank in and have that conversation. Hank Forrester, the director of hunting at the National Deer Association, my colleague. Hank, it's good to see you. We, we work with each other on a daily basis, but we don't always have a chance to have these deep conversations and I think important conversations that we can share with our friends who listen to the show. So thanks for being on and uh, maybe just start off with telling us a little bit about you personally. And then what in the heck does the director of hunting do at the NDA? <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Um, again, Hank Forster, director of hunting at the NDA. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just a deer hunter at heart, didn't grow up deer hunting, um, who uh, wanted to work in conservation and, uh, and found my way to the National Deer Association after a stint in Washington, D.C. Um, after a, a mentor of mine told me that if I could figure out how to get the next generation of hunters involved in the outdoors, I'd always have a job. And I took him on to that. And, um, you know, I think we, we know that whitetail deer are the number one big game animal in the world. And and really that cornerstone species um, for us uh, in the United States. And there's no better place to be than the National Deer Association. I've, I've been here um, coming on eight years and, uh, and it's, it's been a pleasure. It's, a, it's obviously a passion of mine and, um, and I really enjoyed it. It doesn't often feel like work. Um, but what does the director of hunting do? Um, you know, it's my job to advocate for, educate, uh, new hunters. Um, I feel like I kind of carry that segment of our, our organization that looks out for and, and tries to provide not only for the new hunters, but the mentors that we have to recruit. And that's really, um, you know, our original push as an organization being a group of, of deer hunters, it's inspiring our members and other deer hunters to mentor new hunters, um, to get out there and show a, a new group of people what they love to do and really pass on uh, that to the next generation. Um, just briefly, you know, the recent research says that there's almost 25 million Americans who are interested in learning to hunt that say they would hunt if given the chance, but um, are sitting on the sidelines. They find or perceive hunting as daunting, don't entertain the idea of getting into it. And, um, you know, I'm here to tell them, and, and we all are, that, um, you know, hunting is easy and attainable for anyone. It takes a few little barriers to entry. I think most are perceived and actual, um, but, but anybody can do this. So, you know, we've got great educational resources, really what QDMA and now National Deer Association cut their teeth on was education and outreach. And, and that's really what we do and provide that content for new hunters and, and also the mentors and current hunters as well. We're going to talk an awful lot about some of the things you mentioned there, mentoring. We'll talk about the field to fork program. Uh, we'll get deeply into that a little bit later here in the show. I got to ask you though, you're obviously a hunter. You and I had a chance to hunt together a little bit in Kentucky this fall, which was a lot of fun. How'd your season go? Well, my season went really well. Um, you know, I didn't harvest many deer till the late season, but 
Um, that was kind of by choice, I guess. Um, you know, hunted with some traditional equipment when I was with you in Kentucky, and it was pretty selective uh, myself. Um, but I was after a big buck who disappeared, um, as they often do right around the rut. Don't know what happened to him, but I still haven't caught a picture of him. So I, th- I called, I had one daylight photo of him, and I was not in the stand that afternoon. And uh, sounds familiar. But- but I was able to put a doe in the freezer and later a boat, a bug down in Mississippi during the rut in January. So that, that was exciting. But I, I have mentored a few new hunters. Um, one who was about 70 years young, who's really one of my father's friends and a, and a longtime friend of mine just through that affiliation. But um, he had given me a pair of skis 20 years ago that turned into a, another pair of skis. And, and I eat a, a quite a bit as a youngster or whatever don't do it as much as I'd like to anymore but he had always wanted to deer hunt and had never been and so uh we we went afield and got him a deer and showed him how to do it and I, I think he'll continue um he definitely has uh, he's an over analyzer and thinks too much about everything and that was my biggest um you know, recommendation to him was quit overthinking everything let's go hunting you know he was he was overthinking everything, but um, I've got brother-in-laws and and their friends, and so I've got a lot of a lot of competition on the property. Um, but it, it's a lot of fun, and, and I find it very rewarding to get them out and kind of create new hunters around me. Yeah, it, people can't see this, but as you're saying, creates competition. You're smiling, so it's welcome competition. You like having the company. <laughs> Let's not pair that guy up with the doctor, by the way, because they'd probably never get out of the truck. They'd just be trying to figure <laughs> out a plan. Is that fair, Doc? I think uh, we, he and I would be in front of the computer or on at least my phone going through apps and analyzing to the point of where I think the sun would be setting before we stepped out of a vehicle. I think you're right. <laughs> well, everybody, everyone, and you know this through mentoring, Hank, and being around a lot of people that hunt, everybody sort of has their own kind of approach and way of doing things. And so it's funny though. I think the success rate among all those people and all the different methods is probably similar. So we all may go about it in a different way. Hank, I want to hit you with something right out of the gate here. And we will come back to mentoring because I think it's one of the more fascinating things that a person can experience. And certainly you do a ton of it, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit big picture here. And that is, I'm going to ask you the question, why do we need more hunters? Uh, there's a few, you know, reasons we need more hunters. Um, a, we, we only, according to the 2016 national survey on hunting, fishing and other outdoor recreations, recreation sports or whatever. Um, there's only 11 and a half million hunters in the United States. It's about four and a half percent of the population. And, and, uh, you know, as the national deer association and, and former Alliance and the advocacy we do, we have to understand that it's a numbers game and it, it's a risk to be such a, a vast minority of the population. Um, I talk to a lot of hunters and they're like, yeah, right. Everybody that I know hunts. And it's because we don't talk about hunting to non-hunters. I think we're an insular community. We're, we're scared that we're going to be attacked. Um, but it's not the case. 82% of Americans approve of hunting deer and turkey for food. So chances are you've got an advocate walking by you every day, but we're not, we're not open and talking about it. So we're a vast minority of the population. Hunters today are segmented in one demographic. We're 90% male and we're 97% Caucasian. Again, um, not a good statistic for the future of hunting. And we can talk later about whether increasing or diversifying hunting is more important, but um, we need to understand that we need more numbers. Second off, um, you know, my, my former colleague and friend, uh, Swanee Evans, still a friend, Charles Swanee Evans, he always said it. The people need to understand, and we were in Georgia working for the Georgia R3 initiative, the people need to understand the quality and quantity of the hunting in their state is dependent on the number of licensed hunters in their state. Um, and so what it is, is that our system of conservation, the North American model of conservation is hinged on the number of hunting licenses sold. So, um, you know, without those hunting licenses sold and the federal dollars and match, you know, there's an issue with the funding mechanism for conservation in our country. Um, you know, lastly, we know that, um, you know, hunters are also aging and the largest group of hunters are baby boomers and they're aging out. Um, statistically hunters don't hunt past 70. And uh, of course we know people who bug that trend and I hope we all do, but you lose hunting buddies, you know, health of, of yourself or, or a loved one. 
I mean, I've seen it with my own family, people who wish to still get out there and didn't because of responsibilities or, or whatever in old age health. Um, but we're not going to hunt in old age. So, so we're losing hunters at quite the clip. We haven't been recruiting hunters at that same clip. And, and there is a little bit to, um, to suggest that hunting may be growing, hunting participation may be growing, but that would be such a, a short-lived trend on a long blip of a decline. It, it's no time to celebrate. Um, we, we need more hunters. Um, and then, and lastly, I, I just post that we're getting a lot of this derogatory we don't need our three. We don't need more new hunters where our hunt is, is, um, you know, saturated. And, and yes, I believe that situationally that may be true. Um, species, you know, if you're a duck hunter and you're in the Southeast, it's probably harder to find a place to duck hunt. Um, deer are off of uh, all time high probably. And the opportunities to hunt deer in urban and unhunted areas and even public land, I think are, are, are there and rampant and, I really believe that anybody, um, you know, there's some bad places to live for hunting, but vast majority of places, there's places to hunt if you're willing to put in the time to find them. And, um, you know, so a lot of that sentiment's like the public land hunter, you know, the person trying to get the, the coveted tag. But at the end of the day, we're the most fortunate country in the world in terms of wildlife and hunting opportunity. Uh, that I know of, and we should celebrate it and we should get more people out there. Um, Again, 20, maybe 25 million Americans want to get out there and do this. They, they're just not entertaining the idea or don't know how to get started. And uh, wouldn't it be fun to get more of them out there? You said a bunch of things there I'd like to unpack and some we will get into. Um, you, the last, one of the last things you said kind of caught my attention you, because I've heard some of this noise about, well, these difficult tags, particular, particularly out West, are difficult to get. But I don't think that's because of more hunters. I think that's because of more educated hunters that have learned of these opportunities and apply. I mean, to me, correct me if I'm wrong or if you feel differently, I just don't see someone who we take out on a field to fork event, for example, turning around and then applying for a big time elk tag in, in Wyoming. Am I right? No, no. Um, I mean, I'm sure there'll be that few percentage, but Honestly, most of our field to fork hunters are looking for local sustainable food. And I, I love to go to Utah and elk hunt as much as anybody, but you can't really chalk it up in terms of carbon footprint or anything. I mean, I'm driving across the country to go get an elk when I could get a deer in my backyard. Um, so you got to think about the motivations of hunters. And, and most of these people are, are merely motivated by filling their freezer, a connection with nature, you know, and, and that can be a local conquest. Some people have said, and it's not just one person, there was one very, um, what do I want to say, popular or uh, in the media type example where someone said that they don't think we need additional hunters, the whole R3, which by the way means uh, recruit, reactivate, and retain hunters. When Hank says R3, that's what he means. And so, and I, I'm not even going to say that, that there aren't decent points made. There are points made that make sense. But what do you say to someone who may just say to you, listen, we don't need more hunters because what it boils down to is I don't want competition for the places I already go. I think that's pretty selfish, narrow-minded. Um, I just, I really can't entertain that idea. I mean, I get it. I've got uh, I've got access to 86 acres and I've got, you know, seven or eight people who want to hunt. And, and I mean, I understand that, but that, that's not the, the end of the resource, you know, I mean, next door that they have more and there may be opportunity to knock on that door. I just, I think we're working with such a large resource when you really look at all the different opportunities. Um, I, I just can't really entertain that selfish idea. Somebody introduced them to hunting um, you know, what if that person didn't exist? What if that person was like, you know what, there's enough hunters. We really don't need you. How would they feel? Um, you know, they wouldn't be sitting here today pining about, um, some kind of competition. And, and Hank, that's a really good way to look at it is that, you know, in, in a lot of different fields, whether it be, you know, work fields or, uh, recreational sports, things like that, there's that passing of the baton or, you know, passing of the torch. But if you look at it to go back and expand upon your point is that these individuals that might be specifically talking about enough hunters being out there, 
And if they're specifically talking about public land, you know, they're, they're talking out of one side of their mouth and getting benefits out of the other because public land is owned by every person in that state. And so the small percentage that we're talking about here that are claiming dibs on that piece of land and believing that it's there's enough out there technically are misinformed for sure. And they need to look at the process a lot differently. Absolutely. Um, and you could argue that, you know, more hunters would benefit that public land and putting more resources and management into it and, you know, um, there's, there's all kinds of ways to look at it, but currently, you know, those state agencies and, and bodies that are managing these lands are, are being funded by hunting license by a vast majority. That's exactly right. There's a whole other area that we haven't even touched on that's coming to mind here. And that is the idea that, okay, you said earlier, there are people that think, well, everybody hunts. We know that's not true. Um, by the way, before I forget, you said something that kind of hurt my feelings about most people quit hunting when they're 70. And so that has made me realize that most of my hunting is behind me and not in front of me unless I can buck that trend. So thanks for that, Hank. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, believe me, I'll go as long as I can go. <laughs> Even if it means just, you know, hobbling out in my backyard, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. But um, policy, the fact that when we need support for whether it be legislation or even as simple as a game law, state wildlife agencies, let's be clear about it. They want to manage wildlife to their best ability, but many of them are limited by what the political climate is. And so people don't get excited about policy, but it's a, it's a necessity. We had a policy meeting the other night with some of our top branches and volunteers where our director of policy, Torin Miller, updated them on what's going on. And even they admit that it's not fun to do policy, but we have to do it. And the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is we're trying to win policy battles with four or 5% of the population. And uh, that's, that's not easy to Everybody saw the movie Hoosiers, right, where the tiny school goes and beats the, the giant school for the state championship. Well, that's not how it happens in the policy world. You get crushed. And so I think the other reason we need more people in, in our hunting circles is just to have more voices. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's a public opinion battle. And, and we're, we're, you know, people who really want to say, hey, you know, we don't need more hunters or, or whatever. Um, you know, they don't understand what I think is really driving this resurgence or popularity and hunting. And that comes down to the advocacy and policy side as well as we've been recording the highest public approval of hunting that we've ever seen. So we're just sitting in this societal evolution where the trends are in our favor. I mean, the local war movement, you know, knowing where your food comes from, you know, um, so many people talked about, you know, wanted to be self-reliant during the pandemic or more self-reliant. I mean, we've just seen just all this societal trends open up to where it, it's boding well for people who that next step may be hunting. You know, people want to get outside public lands, public spaces and wildlife. I mean, even, you know, doing it for Instagram, maybe pushing people to the Grand Canyon and, and then what's next or whatever. But you have it from that point of view. But at the same time, I mean, kind of the rebuttal to, to what you're speaking of, of, of creating these hunters. Um, when, when we find these field to fork participants, and, and of course, we've been on the Meat Eater podcast. And so we, we've, we've kind of gotten our name out there and, and the attention of their listeners. But even before that, and I think past that episode and kind of the group that listened to it, I can't tell you how often, I mean, it may be 80% of our new hunters that come through Field to Fork say, I saw Meat Eater on Netflix and I decided I wanted to hunt. And it's not exactly that it's just Meat Eater. And then it's a positive image for hunting and it's, um, it's trending on Netflix, but it's the fact that it's on Netflix. And guess that is a portal to the non-hunting world that we've never tapped with a... Um, you know, a program that is approachable, that's presentable, responsible, and, and people want to watch it and they get empowered by it. And that's what's happening. It's the Netflix effect. And I don't, I mean, I mean where we work with Mediator, they might know more than I do. I'm, this is just kind of that, that timeline in my head. But I truly believe that Netflix is really what's pushing this. 
um, Hunting Publix on Amazon Prime, and people can get a glimpse into that. But Meat Eater and that image that they're pushing through that screen in people's living rooms is, and, and, and all the other societal changes that you can add on top of that is what I believe is really pushing hunting participation, that blip of growth we're seeing. I mean, of course, there's industries and organizations and, and the whole R3 you know, sphere that are they're working on that. State agencies are more focused on that. And we're trying to make it easier for people to get into hunting. But at the end of the day, it's about flipping that switch in their head. And I, I believe that's what's doing it. You said something earlier that I really liked. And you said that just because we've seen an uptick in hunting numbers doesn't mean it's time to celebrate. I agree with that 100%. I feel like when you see an uptick, you put your foot to the floor and you, and you go full bore after it. And so that leads me to my next question. And as you know, in, as we work at the National Deer Association, we are obviously very tied to hunting, but, but not all of our members are hunters. And I'm hoping to grow even more membership that people that might not currently be hunters, but they want to learn more. And we talk about just the value of deer in particular, and we're a deer organization. So let's just stay there for a second and let alone non-hunters, but hunters, I don't even think understand just how valuable deer are to all of wildlife conservation. And so I think to your point of it's not time to celebrate, I think we have to be willing to play a long game. I think that if we educate people about deer, about the value of deer, and about what happens to all wildlife conservation if we stop hunting deer, I think that that's one way to play the long game to get more people interested in, if, if not hunting themselves, at least a sensitivity to hunting and understanding that it's important. Do you think that that is also is equally important to recruiting people who will actually buy a hunting license? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think we're going to make hunters out of everybody. And I mean, I think you could speak to the carrying capacity of hunters, but um, there's, there's nothing that can touch the whitetail deer and opportunity and, and impact, you know, just Southeastern deer study group meeting this year that we're hosting is exactly themed that. And, and uh, I helped uh, recruit Robert Morgan, a historian to speak to the historical value of deer. Cause you know, I have a history degree and I, I love that kind of stuff, but we also want to talk about the modern value and, um, you know, it's deer, just such that hot topic, you know, bears, turkeys, they all have different intrinsic values to society. It seems like, but, um, but deer, um, really, really do, um, move the needle the most in our country and, and the non-hunting public is, is just as important to that. And yeah, I, I've always said that I, I want a non-hunter to come to the National Deer Association website and say, Hey, you know, honey might not be for me, but I respect what they do and they're doing good. And, and I'm them to see that from, from the outstart. And, um, we want non-hunters as members and, and we need them as supporters. And I'm telling you, I mean, just in what we do, and I know, you know, this too, is we, we tell non-hunters all the time what we do because they say, Hey, what do you do? And it's like, well, I actually work in conservation and hunting and sportsman bags. And so you have this conversation with non-hunters all the time. Um, and, and it, it's got to be that 80-20 rule again that yeah, I really don't see that many people who have a, a negative opinion of hunting um, or, or don't see the value of it. It just might not be an, an activity that they choose to do. And it, it's that 80% of Americans in the middle that are going to you know, dictate the future of what we do. So, Hank, let me jump in here with a with an, an opinion question. I want your opinion on this one because I'm not sure if the actual stats are out there and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, in the evolution of, of hunter recruitment, because this is a, a moving target uh, out of the three of us, I am the oldest and the closest one to 70. So, um, you know, seeing the torse being passed, passed off to the younger generation is important to me. But where along that timeline has that recruitment and or retention really changed? Because when I was younger, it was you hunted because dad did and grandpa did. And, you know, they went up to the mountains or they went to deer camp and it was this big event. And to me, even now with my own children and my friend's children, that that tradition isn't there. I think the tradition has changed and modified a little bit over time. And if you can kind of speak to that, just because I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on that, 
that's making either the, re the recruitment retention a little bit more different or challenging in this day and age? It's a great question. I guess I'll just kind of run through the age segments, kind of how I identify them and see them. But, you know, traditional recruitment uh, models focused on youth. And, and there's some, there's some uh, reasons we've, we've moved away from that. Um, they're not the most efficient audience. And that's really what it is, is we're trying to create programs that create hunters and um, not just pull heartstrings or make people feel good. We're, we're trying to actually create a licensed buyer. And so youth, um, you know, I read a thing the other day, they, they don't have checkbooks, cars, or calendars that they fill at their choosing. Um, so you, you can take a kid hunting, but without really, without mentoring their parent as well, they're probably not going to replicate that activity. The other real failure that we had with those youth programs is that we really struggled as, as hunting groups or, or state agencies that, that worked with hunters. We struggled to find youth that were outside of our, they might not have been in our family, which often they were, but they were at least in a hunting culture or growing up in a community of hunters. So we really weren't growing, you know, that, that hunting community. We were just taking a, you know, a kid that should have been mentored by the guy who nominated him, but he saw this other opportunity and, and sent him along. So we've kind of moved away from youth, but I say that, and, you know, we still host a number of youth hunts. I mean, on paper, we probably do as many youth hunts as, as Field the Forks every year. We've just really taken our um, time and energy and really tried to grow the adult-focused programs and inspire our members and, and other groups that we work with to, to focus on the adults. And as I said, by focusing on the adults, we can mentor their, their kids. I mean, we teach the parent, and next year, the, the kid is going with them. So it, it's just a more efficient way to, to mentor and to pass it on and also it, you know, that adult can replicate that process next weekend. So they can do it for themselves next weekend. They can take their friend who appear family member or kid that next weekend as well. So that mentoring through that new hunter or, or hunter who's going through their trial period starts immediately. And that's another reason to, to take adults, but there's been a huge uptick in, in college programs. And there's a lot of research to suggest that you adopt a lot of lifelong, um, uh, you know, activities or things that you do, you're impressionable as a college student. Um, I, I understand that. I see that side of it. I think they neglect how poor most college students are, how busy they are with college and social events. Um, we've been, we've started a number of collegiate programs and they can be really self-sustaining and great programs. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, but I don't see that demographic as kind of our target audience, especially for field of work and stuff. Now we have taking plenty of undergraduates and, and graduate students are actually the more ideal candidate. I've, and we've seen when we started Field to Fork in Athens, a college, a Southern college town, you know, we were recruiting a lot of college kids um, and adults, obviously college adults, but uh, from the farmer's market booth there. Um, really though, I think our target demographic or, or our sweet spot in, in today's world, when we look at our Field to Fork hunters, is that 35 to 45. It's kind of their, they're figuring out that next step. Often they have young kids, um, but they're kind of finding the time and maybe the money. Um, but that seems to be kind of, you know, uh, the majority of our new hunters, they, they're falling right in that. And then of course we're taking new hunters, um, you know, 70 plus. I mean, we get participants every year um, in, in that age range as well, um, you know, in, from 45 to 70 plus is what I'm trying to say here, but um, we're not discriminative on age other than um, we, we make them adult programs. And that really, um, it aids in, in kind of that community and camaraderie in the program. And I'll just, I'll just throw this out here real quick because I don't think I've said it, but I believe creating a hunter comes down to building confidence. It's obviously giving them the knowledge and skills they need to be safe and proficient in the woods and, and take care of that animal after a shot or whatever. But really, um, ultimately, what is a hunter? It's someone who self-identifies as one, and that's a confidence level. That's saying, I can do this and I'm going to do it. And so we create this confidence and this knowledge through the organized program, but really through the community and the camaraderie that you probably found in, in a deer camp or whoever mentored you. We create that or invite new hunters into our you know, community that we have but it's about building that confidence of that new hunter 
um, and just showing them that they can they can bite this off and do it. So all age ranges work, but if if we have an adult program after the you know guns or crossbows are put away, we can share an adult beverage. It, you can just um, kind of connect on a different level and and kind of build that hunting community that we've all found uh, in these programs. Well, speaking of confidence, that that is true because uh, a field of fork participant that we had on just a few episodes ago, that was one thing that was very very important to her was the fact that this system provided her all the components that would give her the confidence to be able to go out and do it in a way that made her feel settled and reassured that she was going to at least have a good experience. Absolutely. You know, we provide for all of our programs, we provide free access to online hunter education and free access to our Deer Hunting 101 course, both of them through calcomeerhuntered.com. And um, so we're taking a lot of that education off the mentor. We realized that was kind of a roadblock to replication because a lot of very proficient and competent deer hunters that I know didn't feel like they could teach people how to deer hunt a classroom setting. Like they just did the group setting, just took them off their pedestal or whatever. It was a major hang up. And I also see that when we talk about replicating field before people you know, really think that there's got to be a ton of education and classroom time. And, and COVID even, even pushed this to, or expedited the process, but we've really taken a lot of that education as a prerequisite at home. So when we're in person, we really just reiterate safety. You know, obviously we want to make sure they're proficient with whatever implement they're using to hunt with. We always go over shot placement again, um, you know, want to give them kind of a, a next steps and that kind of stuff. But most of the time that we spend in the organized event, is, you know, shooting or, or getting proficiency there, you know, a little bit of education, but then it's sharing venison meals. It's, it's, uh, you know, just kind of going through the motions of deer camp or whatnot, but that is really, uh, you know, where we build that confidence and stuff like that, but we're giving them great resources. Um, and, and anybody can find these online. I mean, huntered.com has the hunter education for every state online. And, and our Deer Honey 101 course that we created with them. But, um, you know, it's really not as much education as people might think. It's more about just, you know, giving them the confidence, getting them that trial phase and showing them that this you can do. I mean, this is something you can do. And um, if you watch our video from 2018, uh, our Field of Fork video or, or even up, um, you know, you, you listen to some of the content of our Field of Fork Hunters, they, they always come back and say, you know, this is a lot easier than I expected. Like, I thought this would be a lot harder, whether it be the gutting or, or just getting out there and finding the deer. Um, usually you're like, man, this is, this is a lot easier than I expected, or this isn't as hard as I expected. So I really, uh, I hinted at it earlier. I think most barriers to entry are perceived, they're up here in our minds that, oh, that's got to be really hard to do, or I can't do that. But um, to any non-hunter out there, there's 8 million of us deer hunters out there. And, and I'm sure some of them aren't as smart as you are. I mean, just basically of the 8 million, there's gotta be some out there. So, um, you know, get out there and try. There's, there's a lot of people doing it. Yeah. I mean, so, even, even me and the doctor do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Hey, real quick, since we're talking about resources out there, I mean, you know, Nick, if it's okay with you, like, Hank, do you want to quickly talk about, uh, the podcast that you and Matt Ross were involved in? Absolutely. Absolutely. We created a how to hunt deer podcast, um, with, um, the sportsman's nation. So you can find it on our website at deerassociation.com or over on sportsman's nation. Uh, but Dan Johnson, the nine finger Chronicles, sat down with myself and Matt Ross and, and we pretty much went through our, um, our education of, of what we think you need to know to be a successful deer hunter. Um, and we put it into a podcast format so people can digest it in, in, a, in a new format, maybe when they're driving to work or, or, or working around the house or whatever. Um, we just wanted to, con you know, it, it's our goal to provide this, you know, good quality education, just like uh, NDA has always done, but also provide it to, to new audiences and new hunters. And so we wanted to provide a new format for that. Um, you know, our online course has been very successful, but this is a free resource that people can find on however they digest podcasts and, 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 and get much of the same content. 
let's just stick on field to fork for a second and then we'll, we'll bring it home talking about mentoring and, and why you get so much joy out of that. But real quick, Hank, on field to fork, our, our results 2021 and also expectations for 2022. Yeah, so 2021 uh, uh, was a great year for Field of Fork. We had our most programs ever, and that's coming after kind of a, a slowdown due to COVID. So that was really exciting to see. We had some really awesome programs, and we have some really good uh, content coming out from those coming soon. So keep your uh, eyes out for that. I guess I can say it on here, but um, you know, we, we hosted a number of industry programs this year. We, we brought back some we had to to kick off because of COVID last year, but we, we did run a number of programs during 2020. Um, and, and so we, we, we keep all the, you know, ones we've done for many years online, but we did uh, a few for industry this year, one being American Outdoor Brands who owns Meat Exclamation Point, the, the food processing company, among other brands. So they'll be um, dropping a, a video of our event soon. And, and Nick, you were there and we'll be, and open the video, a uh, really great video. Um, but you know, we found early on that there was opportunity even within our industry. We weren't even, um, you know, helping the, the aspiring hunters within our, our groups. I mean, we hosted a Field to Fork-esque event for the staff because we, people said, hey, Hank, I see what you're doing out there after work, and I'd like to do that. I, I'd like to. So it was eye-opening. We, we've hosted them for a lot of gun companies, but this year um, we hosted them for AOB, Vortex, um, I'm blanking right now, um, but we hosted them for a number of industry. We had some really neat field to forks. There were more destination events. We, we went with some new partners. Uh, we hosted one with hunters of color in New York, um, taking hunters who are black indigenous people of color. So working on diversifying that hunter base and, and offering, uh, an opportunity to go hunting to a new demographic. Um, we, we ran the back 40 to fork as we're calling it. So meat eater did give us the back 40 last year. So we ran a community-based program on that. I went up there four or five times this year, five times this year for this fall. And we did a, a weekend of training um, and then hunted two different weekends. Uh, and so it was really a local, uh, you know, through the duration of the season, we took advantage of, you know, early antlerless rifle seasons, which I love to do. Um, but we had a really great event there and you'll see uh, content coming from that, you know, Vortex film there's Vortex was all internal, 300 employees, many of them that don't hunt. We sent out a survey to their staff that said, do you hunt? Yes or no. If you do, are you willing to mentor a new hunter? Uh, you know, if you don't hunt, would you like to learn? And so you've got the mentor and the mentee all under one roof and, and pairing. So it's very sustainable and they can plan to continue to do that and grow it internally but we documented the program. We, uh, we ran a number of field of forks that we've continued that run on national wildlife refuges that I really love because they're typically not open for hunting. Um, but kind of the first and the capstone of that one would be the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge and just south of the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Um, they recruit 36 new hunters a year, hunt the refuge with archery equipment get a lot of local press from city papers and the Philadelphia Inquirer. So not only is it like localized in the community, but the, the larger community knows about it. They're also looking at targeting, you know, the, the local um, populations and, and, and that kind of stuff. So it's a really great program. And, and, and they close the refuge for eight days a year uh, for hunting. So, so that's really cool. Um, and, and, you know, you've got to talk about that PR. We were turning away people last year who were just coming to walk their dog those days, didn't realize the refuge was closed. And, and it, 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 it wasn't fun to turn away the, the um, dog walkers. So I went out to PetSmart and bought some milk bones and we gave out milk bones to the dogs <laughs> as we turned them away. But, you know, it was an opportunity to, to say, hey, we're sorry the refuge is closed this weekend, but this is what we're doing. And, and here's a, a treat for FIDO or whatever. So, uh, so I mean, there's that opportunity to even even when hunting may shut down an opportunity for a non hunter or whatever. I mean, it's an opportunity for us to educate and, and, and make a friend. Um, but I feel the fork, it continues to grow. We're continuing to work on um, more resources and the resources we have have really proven to work well. Um, our, our branches and volunteers still run a number of field to forks all across the country. We partner with a number of state agencies 
Um, but yeah, again, 43 and 17 states. And really moving forward for 2022, we want to continue to grow that in-person programming. Um, we're going to continue to build more resources for the new hunters, but we also want to build more community online. And that's a big push of ours this year. Um, but, you know, these new hunters need that community that we all have. And, and, and I believe that we can foster a little bit of that online. Not only are they utilizing our educational resources and content online, but I want to make sure that we can interface with them. We already have spots on our website where mentors can go up to sign up if they're willing to mentor. We have new hunter signups for people who want to learn to hunt so we can map them and we can, uh, you know, connect them or tell them of programs that are happening in their area. But I want to continue to snowball that and kind of create more of a community and, and, and an opportunity for them to interface with us, ask us questions, us provide more content on a timely basis, that kind of stuff. So, that's the that's real push is not only to focus on the in-person and stuff, but focus on kind of that 40,000 foot level, because that's that's really what we're going to have to focus on to really push the numbers and the numbers of new hunters we want to see. Um, and lastly, you know, the future of these new hunters and, and you're going to ask me about mentoring, but the future of these new hunters is often going to rely on, on the mentors and the hunters that are willing to share their knowledge and their passion. So we've got to continue to push that from our side, you know, inspire our, our staff and stuff too. Uh, and not, excuse me, not our staff, but all hunters, you know, from that 40,000 foot level, we need all hunters to realize that this is something they should do. Maybe, you know, I don't know why we don't judge a good hunter by at least one tenant on whether they pass it on or mentor others, but we kind of need to make it more of a culture of hunting that, you know, you need to be expected to, to share your passion, your knowledge, at least being an advocate, sharing venison meals, whatever. Uh, but, you know, share it. Um, you don't have to take everybody hunting, but you can, uh, you can create advocates. Well, let's just stay there, Hank, and, and just take a couple minutes to tell us about mentoring. And so someone may be sitting there listening, saying, you know, I've never really taken anybody out hunting. I don't know if I have time to, will I enjoy it? Will it just get in the way of my own hunting? So just, just what I want to hear from you is why is it so satisfying to you? And then also, I think it might help if you shared uh, maybe your best memory you've had as a mentor overall, and, and then maybe just something that may have just happened in this most recent season. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's a funny question and it, it's kind of that it's the same thing that is what makes build the fork or any kind of event that's that's bringing in a bunch of hunters and a bunch of non-hunters. Um, we realized very early on that like a very diverse group of people could come together by focusing on a shared passion of wild food and wild spaces. And, and that a, that a new hunter as a mentee would value that mentor for their knowledge and their passion. And, and, and you know what, that makes that mentor walk a little taller that day. They feel that they're valued, that these people that may be very different than them uh, value them, want to you know, get some of that knowledge. I mean, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship, the mentor and mentee. And, and so on a personal or an individual basis, it's the same thing. I mean, whether um, you learn to hunt through like, you know, as you were just you know, pushed into it or, you know, kind of you're just drug along with your family or whatever as a kid, or, or you got into it in, in middle age or whatever, you know, you know, that, that early success and, and the, just the, the power and, and stuff of that event. Well, um, I can tell you that seeing that through the eyes of another new hunter can bring you back to that. It can, it can give you that again. It may, I probably get more excited every once in a while I'll shake, you know, in, in the deer stand or whatever. It happens a lot more when I'm watching somebody than I'm actually hunting myself. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get more excited. I find it more rewarding to take somebody new than hunt for myself. Honestly, um, the number of days I sit in the stand to the number of days that I actually, you know, harvest the deer are so minuscule that, uh, it's a lot more fun to take somebody new. And honestly, um, I find that hunting is a better an activity that's a better shared. And I think you two find that in your friendship and, and around hunting, but I don't need to be sitting in the stand with someone, but if there's someone out there in the elements that I'm experiencing that day, I, I'm, I'm having more fun. I'm, I'm going to sit a little longer. I'm, I'm, I'm just more in the game or whatever. Um, 
So there's that value, but um, really it's, it's just something that's hugely rewarding. Um, and so, you know, I, I think my favorite, you know, I, I took a handful of new hunters out. I mean, I, I hosted a number of programs. It's very rewarding to just be the host of a program on the field of forks that I go to. I hardly ever sit with a new hunter. I usually am behind the scenes, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, but I, you know, do kind of all the planning and programming. And, you know, I know the profiles of everybody and recruit the mentors and know their stories. And, um, you know, it's really nice to be a part of it and be, be thanked for the, you know, creating the opportunity or whatever. Um, so that those, those are hugely rewarding. And it's, it's seeing that, that cohesion of different groups is, is really uh, inspiring. Um, for me personally, this year, from like a, a mentoring perspective, probably just taking this um, friend of my dad's who was an overthinker and stuff. It, it was a lot of fun. I don't think I wanted to share the stand with him for five days this season, but people also <laughs> need to understand that, um, you know, there's different levels of mentorship. Some people need more hands-on. Others just need that, that phone call or that, that cell phone number to have in their phone to say, hey, you know, I feel comfortable shooting. I think I know where to find it. Maybe you go and help them hang a deer stand, you know, but you don't actually send the stand with them. But having that phone number to call to say, hey, I just shot one. Can you come help me? I mean, that's a booster. Take that confidence level and double it when, when they've got that. So, you know, mentoring is a whole fascinating thing, really just being an advocate for hunting, like sharing venison meals with people. Um, I've been mentoring like brothers-in-laws and family and stuff that it's multiple year process. I mean, we might hunt one day a year or whatever, but it took a couple to get a deer and now they're sitting on themselves and, um, you know, you know, shooting multiple deer a season and cooking it for their family or stuff. So, that stuff is, is hugely rewarding and it's a different type of experience, but probably sitting in that stand with them this year. Um, it was funny. I wasn't at their, they, my father and, and this guy, Bob, they have a dinner group, you know? And, um, and so supposedly I wasn't there, but Bob told the story of the hunt at the dinner group and he left out the part that he shot the tree on the first shot, but he <laughs> shot a tree about 20 yards out the first shot, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, the deer didn't run off too far and we got it on the second shot. He made a perfect shot the second time. And it was, it was nerves and everything. I mean, I'm telling you, um, we, we were overthinking some stuff, but, um, but it was a really rewarding experience, um, and, and really cool to, to help somebody like that, who I, I look forward to continuing. I, I think he'll, he'll be out there doing it again next year and it'll, it'll add to the story. Well, there are, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to leave out parts of stories at times. If you're, if you're a real hunter, you do that. You find, you find out how to master the, the story. And so that he's well on his way. Uh, Hank can't thank you enough for being on here and doing this. Uh, a lot of great information. I think uh, you've answered uh, some of the tough questions about why we need more hunters, but then also just the uh, enjoyment of mentoring. And if someone's sitting there listening to this and is on the fence about whether or not they want to try it, I think you've, certainly done your part to convince him. So thanks for being on and I'll, I'll see you at the next meeting, whenever that is. Uh, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Even though I'm exposed to our field, the fork program just about every day in this job, I can listen to Hank and pick up something new every single time he talks about it. And so he just does a tremendous job of owning that program. He mentioned, I don't know if people caught it, but he drove up to the back 40 property in Michigan, I think he said five times last year, um, you know, Hank lives in the South, <laughs> you know, he's not driving up from even where I'm at in Pennsylvania. He's making long trips up there. He's extremely dedicated to his job and his passion for what he does. I think really came through in that conversation. Yes. Hank's very well versed. And I think uh, I like your term, uh, the ownership of it, but even though, Hank might be the figurehead and I not taking any credit away from him at all. I think what his point also was, is that everyone that is a hunter in some way, shape or form can step up and do something for sure. Whether it be to, as we talked about, you know, in the, in the intro with Sean there, his, his shank um, photos that he took, but I mean, sharing venison with people being there, even as like a support, kind of like you and I do, like you told me the other day, Hey, I'm not going to go hunting. It's too cold. That was a dig in case everyone's wondering. And Hey, if you get something, 
just give me a call, but just to be there to help someone drag a deer out or to support them in that situation for tracking. There's a lot. Um, if you actually list mentor, there's a lot of opportunities there. So, you know, really keep your eye open for that and um, take Hank's lead for sure. We had Evan Husingfeld from Sportsman's Alliance on in a recent episode, and I made some jokes about having to help him get a deer out of the woods. And I can't say that that I specifically mentored him. I didn't sit with him, but certainly was very responsible, I think, for getting him into uh, archery hunting. Actually, I'm going to take that back. His first ever hunt was a backpack hunt in Colorado, which we did together. So, yeah, I'm going to take more credit. <laughs> anyway, um, when he got his first deer with a bow. I remember it was a cold drizzly night in January and I'm sitting on my couch all comfy and cozy. And the minute he called and said he got one and could use help, I did not hesitate to jump up and go help him take care of that because that was a big experience for him and, and to be able to help him see how easy it was. And now he's well on his way, killing all kinds of nice deer. But uh, no, I think that's a great point, Mike. And, and Hank talked about that. And you know, the other thing is we talk about how to take our field to fork program to scale, meaning we can't do all of these from the National Deer Association. Hank can't be driving to 50 field to fork events in a year. He'll never be home. And so we have to have our branches do them or even people or organizations that aren't even directly affiliated with NDA. We're happy to, to help you put on a field to fork event or, or that type of style of event. Or as you had mentioned, Mike, it doesn't even have to be an event. It can just be taking a neighbor or somebody that's shown an interest. And that's what it's all about. So anyway, it was a great discussion. I hope everybody enjoyed that. And getting back to your dig, by the way, I was, I was going to bring it up and tell on myself. <laughs> so yes, in the late season, a couple things happen. Number one, you're probably tired. And number two, the weather's not always great. And so that those things kind of collided. We had a, a really cold uh, night one evening and I told Mike, I said, yeah, I didn't even go because it was too cold. And so that happens. And then uh, Mike, you did get out on a cold night. I was supposed to go. Uh, I ended up just retrieving my last few trail cameras that were out there, which I'm glad I did because now I would have to be trudging through a bunch of snow, but you had a, you had a pretty good hunt for your last hunt of the year. I did. I stepped out, uh, wanted to get one more run at it because I usually use that last hunt of the season as a way to kind of look at the entire year that has gone by and then make some plans, like some preparation. Cause again, as Hank's, we, I admit it to Hank, I am a thinker, but, uh, that last hunt allows me to think ahead and kind of get my strategy ready to go and start to unpack it for the upcoming year. But, um, you know, had a, I already had my buck tag filled, but had a, a small six point walk past me. I saw several doe up on the hill. Like there's, the, we, we hunt what we call this mountain, but it's basically these multiple benches over a several hundred foot elevation change. And um, I, as crunchy and, and loud as it was, I quietly snuck up as high as I could. I got to the second bench, but the deer appeared on the edge of the fourth bench and trailed along the edge of that and actually used the wind in their favor, which you and I kind of strategized about to try and figure out how they were going to come off that hill. But when I stepped out of the truck, it was 19 degrees. When I got back to the truck at the end of the day, it was 11 degrees. So it was a cold one. It was cold. And I dressed with heavy clothing, expecting a cold sit, because what happened to me, it was earlier. Uh, I think it was the day before I was out. I did a morning hunt and an evening hunt, and I had seen a button buck that uh, was wounded in one way or another. Anyway, he couldn't use his right leg at all. And my thought was, well, you know, I'm not normally out there targeting button bucks, but that was a deer that I would have taken if given the opportunity, just because he was not, did not look to be in a good way. Uh, so anyway, I, I wanted to go and try to target that deer, but because I dressed so warmly and then decided to go on these long hikes to retrieve these cameras, <laughs> I ended up soaking wet. And so I was not in any condition to be sitting out in 11, 12 degree temperatures. And that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. And, uh, and, uh, we'll, I'll be, I'll be prepared next year though, for sure to, to get back after it. So, well, I think that's a wrap, uh, for this, this episode. Uh, again, I want to uh, remind you, if you're not already subscribing to the show, please do that. It helps. We appreciate it. And also pass it along to a friend, someone else that might not be listening. We think we bring pretty decent content, the decent variety. And so if you agree, please do that. Uh, at this point, you can find us anywhere that you find podcasts. Uh, look us up or just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast. And you can subscribe from there. And by the way, 
we are still running our promotion for membership, $5 off a regular membership. So instead of 35, it'll be 30. If you just use the code podcast, whenever you buy your membership. So take advantage of that. For more about the National Deer Association, please visit DeerAssociation.com. And you can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and maybe someday TikTok. Still working on that one. Thank you again for listening. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.